Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. My name is Julian Guderlei, and today's episode is a total gem. I'm really proud to have Charles Eisenstein back on the show. I think you two will really enjoy this dialogue between Charles and myself. Um, the questions go deep and far and wide, so there's certainly a lot of opinion and perspective um, from Charles Eisenstein's genius to be found in this episode. Charles is known as an author. He wrote a book called Sacred Economics that really um, kind of hits the modern zeitgeist of how we relate as people to people and um, goes way beyond that, obviously. He also wrote a new book he's just published called Climate, a new story. He'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of this episode. So I truly hope you will enjoy this one and let me know about it. Shoot me a message or write a comment wherever you found this episode and let me know if you like what you hear and what you'd like to hear more of. So without a lot of further talk right before uh, this gem of an episode, let's just jump right into the show with Charles Eisenstein. And here you are. Welcome to the show, Charles. Uh, hi, Julian. Happy to be here. Yeah, very, very um, excited to have you back on the show for kind of a little bit of a longer sit down. Charles, let's just start with the title of this little um, interview here, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. I know that's also the title of the book you wrote. What is it in our hearts that we, we all are so drawn to? <sighs> you know, this brings back memories of uh, being in school, sitting at the desks, you know, just being in a world that some part of me knew was not the way it was supposed to be but having no confirmation of that. In fact, having all of the authorities tell me that this is normal and that if I'm not well adjusted to it, then I need some adjusting. That understanding, so, so I think this is, this is innate in everybody who's growing up in a restrictive society or a society that denies important aspects of life or suppresses important aspects of life, a society where, where um, inauthenticity and alienation are the norm. So the, the title of the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, comes from experiencing that even if my mind did not accept that things could be any different, my heart knew otherwise and, and has always driven me to seek out an expanded um, ex like an expanded experience of life and also to serve that possibility in the world just beyond myself not like oh I want to live the best most awesome life I can but I want everybody to be able to do that I want I want the world to be as beautiful as I think it can be as I know it can be in my heart and 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 as as beautiful as certain experiences have shown me that it could be experiences uh, like spiritual connection or or of, of cooperation or generosity um, of of forgiveness like there's certain interpersonal and and group experiences that that i've had that over the years that said yeah you're right you know it could be like this it could be way more beautiful than than way more beautiful, way more alive, way more authentic, way more 
intimate and real than what is normal. Absolutely. I, I love this, this kind of narrative towards a new normal. And one of the questions I, I always have on my list, because I'm just curious about how people perceive happiness, is what is happiness in a context like that, in this world where there's what, what I hear you say is, is there's hard coherence, right? We're not just in a transactional space. We're, we're in a space of really seeing each other. I don't think happiness serves us well as a goal. I, I see happiness as a side effect of other, of the pursuit and fulfillment of other goals. It, it, it seems kind of um, unsatisfying to say the purpose of life is to be happy. So I'm going to strive for happiness uh, in and of itself. Like, like happiness cannot be, does not come from the self-interested pursuit of happiness. Like I want to get this thing for myself, so I'll be happy. Like, and why am I happy? Because I'm happy because I've achieved, I've achieved happiness. It's not an achievement in that sense. It is a result or even a barometer uh, of the, I mean, I, I don't want to like try to reduce it to, to one thing, but it can be um, a result of being aligned with, with my purpose uh, for being on earth. It can be the result of belonging to a community. It can be the result of the shedding of the barriers to intimacy with the people close to me. Like all of these things bring me to happiness. It can be the result of, of, of the healing of, of deep wounds within myself. And I, I, I'm not going to say that, well, I, I'm motivated to cultivate intimacy. I'm motivated to seek out healing because I want to be happy. It's that these are attractive to me uh, in and of themselves. It's almost like, like when you eat food, eat something delicious. Like, are you really eating it so you can experience deliciousness? Or is the deliciousness an effect of finding the right food for you at that moment that it is meeting your needs. Yeah, so I, yeah, I guess maybe I see happiness more as like a guide, um, yeah, a guide than a goal. Yeah, very, very powerful. I, I resonate with that in the sense that happiness is like the faint singing of the soul that's always kind of happening and, and we, we kind of tune tuned to it. Alimentation comes up for me there. It's so funny that, that you're, you went into food as an example, because one of your like first uh, publications actually was a, a book on, on the yoga of eating. And I, I find it super curious because for my own journey, food is like the, the, the strongest barometer or like thermostat of where, how I'm doing. Food really tells me how I'm in check with my body. And if I'm not, I, it's so much more difficult to actually bring up energy to to be kind to be in the heart to be connected so alimentation really seems to be like the, the baseline where we meet um yeah what, what comes to mind for you in, in regards to food I, I know that there's a lot like a vast knowledge on your end uh, when it comes to eating and, and kind of a mindful way of celebrating food yeah i mean that would be like a whole interview in and of itself um i did write that book it was 
I kind of see it as my practice book. I wrote it like 16, 17 years ago at this point. And the question was, with all these different dietary philosophies, each one claiming to represent the truth of diet and each disparaging the others as foolish and deluded, um, how do I choose? How do I choose among all of these contradictory dietary philosophies? Um, and, and what I came to was, I mean, it sounds almost like a cliche, but to trust my inner authority, to trust my desire, to trust the signals of my body. And it became a yoga or, or a, a, a path of cultivation because I realized I didn't actually know what I wanted. I didn't actually know what tasted good because, because I had been indoctrinated in, in an ideology that told, told me to reject the signals of my body, that, that told me that virtue and health and, and goodness comes through overcoming desire, not by listening to it. That, and, and even in, in our language, you know, well, so-and-so just does whatever he wants. Like that's an insult to say that so-and-so does whatever he wants. You can't just do whatever you want, you know? And I think that what is actually happening is that people who are doing violent, damaging things in the world are not doing what they actually want. They're cut off from desire. And this goes back to early childhood in, um, in our Western ways of parenting that, that seek to override children's desires with um, external control based on conditional approval and shame. Last night I had a little incident. I have a five-year-old, and he. Uh, <laughs> so I served him his dinner, and he said, "Do I have to eat the cabbage?" <laughs> and I said, "Do you want to be?" I said, "It has vitamins. Do you want to be healthy and strong?" I asked him that. He said, "Yes." And and I said, "Well, you choose whether you want to eat the cabbage." And he ate the cabbage. Wow. And he's like, "Actually, this is pretty good." <laughs> you know that's so different from like this this uh tug of war that happens between parents and children these this, this bargaining you know eat some more one more bite and then you da, da, da. like that is overriding desire that's saying eat this because of something else then you get dessert but cutting you off from the actual desire or lack of desire to eat this thing so, so, I mean, I don't know if that's a perfect example, but. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great example actually, and, and kind of gets us on this, this, this path of purpose and choice and how do we even encourage that in each other? And I think it's quite fitting that you said that was your practice book like 16 years ago in that sense, because food is a daily practice also, right? It's, it's very much how, how food occurs. So um, yeah, I, I like how we segued into almost education there. Um, education being like one of the core passions of my my heart right if we're talking about the more beautiful world our hearts uh know are possible i feel like i i grew up the same way thinking like what this can't be it right and um being encouraged to choice and being encouraged to 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 be aware and kind of make a sovereign choice i think we can start early enough so like i want to acknowledge you for making 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 that example with your with your own um with your own child at five years old 
Um, but how, how does that, how does that like happen to you when you're in this interaction? Like, are you, is it just a clear voice? I'm going to help my child understand it from a different perspective, or is it like a tug of war even in your own head that, that you realize, oh man, I just wish you would eat that cabbage. Like, um, doesn't he understand that? Yet? Yeah. I mean, it is tempting to exercise some kind of force on him to make him eat the cabbage. Like, this was a success story, but there have been unsuccessful stories, you know, where he doesn't eat. And I have, I have three other kids too. I mean, this has happened a lot. And, and yeah, certainly it's tempting to use psychological force um, or physical force even. You can't get up from the table until you eat your cabbage. Like a threat, yeah. Yeah, a threat of some sort. That's force. And I think that that, that is training for violence it's training for rebellion um it's it's not the kind of uh experience i want them to internalize and inhabit in the rest of their lives uh it's training for a war against themselves fighting because you try to force yourself to do something and eventually you're going to rebel against it because you're not meant to be a slave you're not meant to knuckle under to even your own force and you want to celebrate life. You want to be alive. What could be more fundamental to life than desire? Desire is what, what drives life. It's the desire of the shark to mate with the other shark. It's the desire of the bacteria to move toward the sugar source. A desire to, to, to go to war against desire is, is profoundly anti-life. And, and it brings up the question, well, what about all those people who seem to have desires that are driving them to harm themselves and others? And what I think is that, I, th I said it already, that they are actually not in touch with their authentic desires, that our desires go through an evolution as we become more aware of ourselves in the world, as we become more integrated, as we become more healed. And we find out that the things that we thought we wanted, like that, you know, BMW and that yacht and that McMansion and, and all that stuff, you get that and that's not really what I wanted. What did I really want? So the inquiry goes deeper and deeper and we get into touch. It's not like an all or nothing thing, but, but we um, plumb the depths of our desire bodies uh, and, and come into into deeper and deeper, more and more authentic desires that then um, can be fulfilled and bring us happiness. So that kind of ties us back to happiness. I, like, I what do I really want? Can you embrace that? Can you actually give yourself permission to do whatever you want? When I, when I do that, my first question is, oh my God, well, what do I want? Exactly. And that's also the most... Yeah, I think integral kind of piece to educate ourselves on every day is discerning what is it I want, right? And then from which place of my, my desire body, uh, as you, you mentioned it, do I want it? And when it's authentic, I like that authentic desire, you said that. Um, when it's an authentic desire, it's kind of like aligned with the universe or the will of God or however it, one would name that in their, own, in their own vocabulary dictionary. But there is a power to being aligned in my own authentic desire. It's like the world really comes alive at that moment because mm -hmm. the world is waiting for each and every one of us 
to express the most unique version of those 7 billion humans that we are. And when we're holding back, right, like we, we can only really recreate um, experiences from our memory. And only when we kind of lean in and, and share even our authentic desire, like desire for me has a lot to do with communication, right? Like it's maybe internally that we, we educate and cultivate what that desire is, but it has a lot to do with communication because if you can express who you are, what you are about and what you want, what you, what you desire from life, if it's, if it's um, an experience in a community or if it's like the yacht, which sounds quite empty once you're there probably, but if you voice it, I think that's how other people really become aware of it. And if your voice is out of integrity or out of alignment about something you want, because you're still having self-doubt or you're kind of stuck somewhere in your own energy body, right? Um, people can feel it. It's kind of like a, the heart wave and the voice kind of com communicate, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A another aspect of, uh, of communication that comes into the fulfillment of desire is that a lot of... Um, our desires are met with packaged substitutes for the things that we really want that are then sold to us uh, or given to us. Um, and we think that, oh yeah, that's what I wanted. It's not just that we're deluded. It's also that the system offers us, doesn't even offer um, the thing that we really want, which might be uh, a feeling of belonging, feeling of community, like to actually like what if what you really want is to be so comfortable with <clears throat> the people around you, to be able to be so unguarded that, that you just know that they know you, they know that you know them, you know both, and you know that they know that they know you. And like, there's just no pretense, like you're totally accepted for who you are by a whole constellation of relationships. Like that is not on offer in our society. So what do you get instead of a feeling of deep belonging? How can you meet that need? So we get then offered things like packaged ideologies and political opinions that we identify with uh, and we go on whatever website, um, right or left or whatever, that gives us a sense of belonging in this uh, community of opinion. We become very vulnerable then to anything that, that pretends to meet that need because it is a really strong need. So it, it, it makes not having a sense of belonging makes people susceptible to say fascist political ideologies that say, here's who you are because really what belonging is, is identity. These, connections that we are supposed to have um, in a more beautiful world with other people and the beings of nature and even unseen beings. These are part of the, the matrix of self. Like these relationships are how we know who we are uh, and what we are and how we are to be. So when these are cut off, we are left with a, a void, um, a, a scarcity of being that drives us to acquire um, psychological and material possessions so that we then know who we are through these possessions. We, we, we expand the separate self in order to compensate for the loss of the 
of the connected cell. Uh, yeah, and so so just to so the real desire is again for community for belonging, but that's not available, so it gets channeled onto money because um, belonging is security. We are insecure if we're not in community. Money then offers itself, oh, here's security. If you have me, then you'll have everything. You'll be taken care of. You'll be taken care of. In a community, you know you're going to be taken care of. Everyone around you loves you. You've taken care of them. You've seen everybody taking care of each other. They'll take care of you. We don't have that, so you need money. So people have an endless hunger for money because no matter how much money you have, you still don't actually have belonging or security. No amount of money can satisfy that need. That means it's addictive. So then we turn around and we blame the symptom as the problem. We blame the symptom of greed, which is a symptom of disconnection and of scarcity of relationship and of insecurity. We blame that as the problem on this planet and, and say, oh, if only we could be less greedy, then we wouldn't be destroying Earth. And especially those really greedy people who have hundreds of millions of dollars and who are still investing it in fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. Like we go to war against the symptom and that distracts attention from the actual cause and leaves us endlessly fighting a war. Because if you don't address the cause, you're gonna get more and more and more of the symptom. And you go to war against that and you think you're fighting for good, but nothing ever changes. Yeah, that is certainly some a place I, I know a lot of people are at this, like nothing ever changes. And like, God, well, we can't even change it, right? Politics are just the way they are, or this is just the way it is, or just deal with reality. This is economics, right? So I, am I hearing you right? Are, are you saying greed is just a symptom? That's right. Almost everything we judge and condemn is a symptom. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good indicator. Yeah. <laughs> when we're in judgment or condemnation, we're most likely not addressing the, the core wound. And it's really in the wound where there's the contradiction, right? Because we don't even like to look at it. But in the wound, it's probably also where the solution is. Because if we lean in, right. we, we get to cure. Yeah, the, the and, honest and the self, thing, the authentic self. You know, if you're trying to be a better person and stuff, like, well, I notice I've been lying, I've been hypocritical, I've been selfish, I've been greedy, and, and we, we or have some addiction or something, and we go to war against those too, trying to, to stop myself from lying anymore. Because, and, and if I do, I beat myself up, and if I am truthful, I reward myself, and I'm being a good person, I'm making progress. Uh, that is also a kind of a war. Um, exerting psychological force on the self by rejecting yourself or approving of yourself. That's force. That yeah. causes, causes survival panic when you, when you levy that over yourself. And it, it obviously doesn't work because it doesn't address the cause of lying, which is what? Have you even thought about that? Why do people lie? It's to feel yeah. safe. Yeah, it's to feel it's safe to create, because like they're the, uncertain about the, the truth they're feeling, right? Because when, when something is really exciting for your desire or your curiosity, and curiosity always brings me back to the childlike mind where everything, you're curious, then you never actually know what's going to come, come next. So you have to somewhat be uncertain and then learn to live with the failure of uncertainty. 
And in order to not go there, we've created this projection, I feel, which comes from this internal lying and then just gets reflected through the masses of everyone who, who kind of lives like that. Mm -hmm. You're saying money is, is kind of the expression of, of that society. And we can't really transition without having at least a parallel reality or solution to money. Well, I mean, money is different things to different people. Yep. Um, given the society that we are already in, for most people, it is true that money is what they need in order to feed and house and clothe themselves. That's, there are people who kind of live outside the money system, but they're unusual. For, for most people, realistically speaking, money is security. It's what I, the point I was making though is that even when all of those material needs are met, the, the craving for money for many people, if not most, is still there. They want more and more and more of it. Uh, at least some people do. And that is driven by alienation, separation, not belonging. Um, it could be driven by other things. It's, I don't want to like offer a formula for, you know, greed for money is a symptom of X, but it's an inquiry that you would go through. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a book on, on economics also that goes into how exactly it is that the money system itself creates the conditions for greed. It's kind of built into the system because it's money is artificially scarce in our system. Yeah, fractional reserve system. And certainly like sacred economics is the book you're speaking of, correct? Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, find, I find it very, very interesting because you're making it really clear. Um, also when, when, when I've met you before to add in the current reality, a lot of people live in, it is true, they kind of need money to get to kind of their next place, right? Or to feed themselves or have housing or whatever. So I think when I look at the current reality and transitioning into, let's say, a, a time exchange reality or a skill exchange reality or, or, or simply like living kind of offset of, of transactional money exchange only, I feel like we can't really just get rid of the money system, but we have to literally transition and have like multiple layers of um, operational system between human transaction. And I, that's what I'm most curious about when it comes to sacred economics is like, how does it look? So everybody talks about blockchain, everybody talks about cryptocurrencies, but when are we actually going to start using currencies to, yeah. to exchange an experience or, or a time spent on a, a piece of land or, or helping build a community center or something like that? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the book Sacred Economics is not about um, abolishing money. It's about how does money have to change to be more aligned with the principles of gift with, with, or more aligned with uh, a world of ecological and social healing. So it's about the evolution of money, not the abolition of money. And one of the key features that it needs to have is a degrowth, I call it. The current money system requires endless growth of the money realm and of the monetized realm, uh, the monetized realm of goods and services, the things that are transacted. Now, I think that, so I think that even in a pretty long-term view, we need something that we would identify as money. 
to, to coordinate the creative energies of human beings on a vast scale. It's like the signaling molecule in a body that, that directs resources to where they're needed and coordinates the cells to perform common functions. Like this is necessary in the social body as well. So I'm not talking about abolishing money. However, the monetized realm, the realm of exchanges, the realm of transactions, the quantified realm has grown beyond what is ideal for human happiness. We, we pay for a lot of things that we should not be paying for, that should be part of a gift economy, that should be provided in community. It's not that everything should be provided in a local community, like maybe microchips, you know, like that probably is gonna be produced by strangers. But as far as like um, cooking, childcare, um, maybe most entertainment, people can sing together, people can play together, people can heal each other. There's so many things that can be returned to the people that have been professionalized and outsourced that would bring life into a more local, more communal, more intimate, more relational phase. Um, and that requires degrowth because every time you reclaim something for, into the realm of gift, community, and relationship, you're demonetizing it. You're saying this is no longer a good and service that a company can provide and um, you know, add to GDP by doing so. Like we're gonna do this ourselves now. We're gonna, we're gonna all learn to, to, to these healing modalities and we're gonna heal each other. Uh, we're gonna recover our skills and build things together. We're gonna grow food together. We're gonna cook together. I'm not saying that all human functions need to be reclaimed in this way, but intimate functions should not be performed by strangers. Yeah, it's almost like the pieces that actually make the local community go round have to also kind of be uh, lived locally, expressed and, and nurtured locally. The microchip, a, a great example, I think I'm totally fine with that being produced by a stranger. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which brings me to kind of like my favorite topic, which is with education, purpose. Uh, and purpose being lived and expressed and also kind of like helping each other to see one's own purpose. Because for me, it's so obvious we're 7 billion humans on this planet and we're somewhat all connected and we're also a, a whole bunch of diversity. So when I look at a community where we just came from, a local community and the way that that lives and breathes and transacts and a global community, is that a, is that a world you're seeing where everyone actually lives in purpose and expresses their own purpose? I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to respond to that. That isn't just the easy answer. Um, you can start with the easy, easy answer and then we can define Easy answer is yes. <laughs> right. So, and then I'm, I'm looking for the deeper answer, right? Because I feel yeah. like purpose has become a buzzword, which right. I'm not against that because I really like people being in purpose. But when we truly feel purpose, it's a different stage than when we're trying to get to understand what the purpose yes. is we've got to be doing. So, so a lot of our, our purpose can only exist in reference to other people's purpose for most people. Uh, it may be that your purpose is very, very uh, individual and, and 
sequestered off from the social realm. Like it could be your purpose to, to, I don't know, work with spirits in some natural place and to build, you know, uh, stone art with your hands and things like that. And no one even ever sees it because you're communicating with the pixies and fairies and stuff like that. Okay, maybe. But for most of us, what we do only makes sense if other people are also performing their part in contributing to a collective purpose. So the collective purpose spins off individual purpose. Therefore, we can, so, so like, I, I guess the problem I have with this whole fixation on finding your purpose is that it, it often can become this like individualistic thing. And I'm in my purpose. But what if you cannot find your purpose except in communication and cooperation and collaboration and community with other people? Because we're not separate individuals. And so I think like there might be where you go through this hyper-individualistic find my purpose, live my purpose kind of thing. Uh, but sooner or later, we recognize that it only exists in reference to other people's purpose. And that the unfolding of our purpose happens in communication. And in fact, that can be part of our purpose to recover um, the, the um, community relational technologies that allow us to cohere. And once we have coherency, then the purpose, you know, one's purpose is obvious. Once you are a cell and a larger being, you know what your function is. So that's, that's one nuance maybe I would like to add to the conversation. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. You're, what, I've, what I saw while you shared that, because um, sometimes that just happens that you're tapping into this, this kind of nation of images that the imagination, I literally saw the di distinction between individuality and coherence. And that we, when we tap into purpose, we kind of are by nature of what true purpose is, becoming aware of our individuality because we are individuals and we are egos in that sense, but in reference to the group. And in that reference, the, the ego is the first thing that falls because it doesn't really matter that much. It's just the messenger. And the individuality is still where let's let's put it this way like my perception of julian is still my my main show i'm seeing every day right and everybody else is seeing their own um th their own individuality being expressed but we're never disconnected from the whole even when we go out the door and we just go to the coffee shop we're part of the whole um living in, in british columbia i would even say because uh, so many people lack the nature reflection that's an immediate reflection for, for living with the land. Um, we're like a step removed from really seeing how one everything is. But once you go out and you're in that flow with nature, nature shows you and tells you in, in ways of animals or, or um, even the weather or the sun. Like there are, there are stories that are kind of slumbering more in the native um, storytelling. Um, yeah, but I think it really relates to purpose because only when we're truly in that flow of interconnectedness, we can confidently say this this seems to be my purpose i didn't even need to pick it i'm just more like remembering it now that my collective is reflecting it back to me mm -hmm. 
Yeah, let me add one more thing to that. Um, to be in touch and in service to one's purpose, you have to love something. Because when you love something and it becomes more important than yourself, you are willing to sacrifice things that um, are of the self in order to more effectively serve that purpose. Unless the purpose is the um, aggrandizement of the self. Uh, the, that maybe could be your purpose. I'm not going to say that, that it's nobody's purpose to just become the most dominant individual on, on the planet. Uh, you might even become president. And be, but even to serve that purpose, like, do you think if there were like an evil master of the universe, like the devil, for example, do you think he would be wasting his time like watching reruns on television? Like even to serve that purpose, you have to make some sacrifices. So whatever, so yeah, so you have to find something that you care about so much that you transcend the, um, the limiting habits that may have confined you. And again, it's, um, a progressive emergence. So you step into a higher level of service to purpose, and then new confining habits become visible that had been invisible before. Very so it's cool. interesting, like, yeah. like there's this convergence between the totally selfless person who just wants to serve the common good and the totally selfish person who wants to just serve himself. Like both have to go through some of the same disciplines in order to effectively do that. This is something that strikes me really interesting as I'm personally just like really committed to this, like opening more and more and more and more in my own path. When I'm in a city like New York or LA and I kind of co-conspire with people who are on the other end of the spectrum as me is how much diligence somebody has to put into, um, yeah, let's say aggrandizing just the self, just, just the, the expression of money and, uh, kind of fame. Um, there's a lot of consistency and, and kind of, yeah, like repetition in that as well, right? Like a daily practice. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting where, where this conversation is leading us because those habits that kind of show up on the path of freeing oneself, right? Like they have to do, we, we, we touched base on it earlier on like with healthy food, with like, for me, it has to do with breath work as well. How does a habit on a collective level look like? when we when we go on onto like a larger topic we touched money but like let's say even the climate which i know is also a topic that really kind of you're co-conspiring in the narrative um how do new habits of humanity look like when you look at a topic like the climate that in my words i think the climate offers us an opportunity to become one and to understand we're we're a collective on a spaceship yeah so collectively, we have a lot of shared habits of thought, um, shared habits of perception, um, as well as tangible shared habits uh, that are encoded into law, encoded into politics, encoded into schooling. Um, you could look at these as, as habits, these social customs and norms and rules even. Um, what I'm mostly, and I'm interested on all these levels, but especially in my book on climate change, I'm, I'm examining the habits of perception 
and um, and thinking that I see as fundamental to the world destroying machine. <clears throat> and yeah, to um, illuminate those habits so that they can be questioned and <clears throat> excuse me, they can be questioned and then maybe released if they are not serving the world we want to live in. Uh, one of those would be the habit of seeing the world as an object, the habit of dehumanizing other people and de-sacralizing um, or de-subjectifying de the world to making it just um, a bunch of stuff whose value lies in how useful it is to us. With other people, we understand, unless you're like totally psychopathic, you understand that other people have a value that's not just how useful they are to you. They have an inherent value because they are beings just like you are. We have, as a, as a culture, we do not see the world that way and have treated it just as um, instruments of our own utility. So we decimated the whales to get the whale oil and the meat, not because, and, and didn't, and that was their value. We didn't see that they are, or didn't allow ourselves to, to feel their sacredness and their beingness. So as long as we see nature as an object, as a dead thing, we will kill it. Our stories, this is kind of what I was saying before, like our, our purpose exists in reference to a collective purpose that is embedded in a collective story. So if we have a collective story that holds nature as an object, as a bunch of resources, then the roles generated by that story will conform to that perception. We will then do things that make sense if nature is an object and that wouldn't make sense if nature is alive and conscious and feeling. And so I want to change that, that perceptual set. I want to change that narrative that says Earth is this complicated machine. And yeah, we better be a little bit more clever about how we dispose of its resources and so we can do it sustainably. I don't, I don't think that's a big enough revolution to actually change the course of, of civilization's destruction of Earth. We need to, to, to start at the very bottom by how we see the rest of existence. Seems to me it's more like a sequential evolution that we're wanting to produce green energy and become a sustainable planet. And then it, it's in the word sustainable, there's like a limit in language. Like why would something be sustainable and not regenerative and like a holistic kind of living, breathing? Yeah. And what do we want to sustain? <laughs> yeah. Very, very powerful to, to go to that place because when we look at earth as like a molecular organism in that sense, and everything's here and given. So there is kind of like a way it could flow or wants to flow that I feel like we're in the way, like we're not fully flowing with it as a larger culture. And I think we're, we're almost like at a brink uh, in our society at this tipping point, maybe even where it could be much simpler, you know, it could be much, much simpler where we realize that 
all the building blocks for our reality are there. For example, like drawing down CO2 out of the atmosphere and using it for in putting it in the different building blocks. I know that in San Francisco, actually, um, the airport and the big Salesforce tower has used that as building blocks. And it's actually something we, we could use at large scales, right? And so I'm not the one to, to say this is the best thing to do or I'm, I'm the expert on the topic. I'm just saying it's very interesting. What if we actually look at Earth as, as kind of a molecular possibility realm instead of a machine? Yeah. I'm not really so excited about that type of carbon drawdown. What, what is a lot more exciting to me is ways of drawing down carbon that actually bring more life to the planet directly. And that means soil. Fundamentally, it means soil. To, 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 you know, a lot of soil has been uh, degraded or even killed. Uh, vast portions of the Midwest have no earthworms anymore because of the repeated poisoning of the soil. Wow, and, I, did, and, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's just become like this inert medium where you put you know, fertilizers and things in and the plants grow, but it's not a living organism anymore. Right, we even call it dirt. It, right. it has no value. <laughs> right. But and then soil it gets, equals life, really. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then it gets eroded, washed into the sea, and um, oxidizes and, and puts CO2 into the atmosphere. So if you do agriculture right, you can build topsoil really quickly. And, and by doing so, you, you um, build life, literally build life. You have return of of insects and biodiversity and birds and, and the water then soaks down into the water table instead of running off, carrying the soil with it. So you don't have as severe floods as you have after there's been um, agriculture and deforestation exposing topsoil. Um, and, and then because the soil is holding so much moisture that gets transpired back into the air, the rains continue longer so you don't have as many droughts either. So the whole drought flood cycle is a consequence of land degradation. Um, I think much more than it is a consequence of greenhouse gases. So I like to, if we're talking about bringing soil, I mean, bringing carbon out of the atmosphere, like I wanna see it go into soil. I wanna see it going into trees. I want, it to, I want to see it going into life. Mm. Um, and I don't know, into building blocks, maybe. Um, but seems to me building blocks are just an yet another sequential evolution of like, well, let's first get green then let's start building with uh, pieces that we don't have to like kind of um, abuse the earth to create. Yeah. But, but then truly it's just fostering the, like the green planet and the blue planet. So yeah. what I find really interesting in, in what you're saying and sharing, I think we even talked about it offline before is this idea of, nature reserves almost like leaving nature to be nature is that something yeah so, that, that so you really see on a larger vision so basically um you know imagine that that you've been drinking heavily and abusing drugs and abusing your body and your liver is about to fail and your kidneys are about to fail and your heart is all clogged up and your lungs you've been smoking you know um, your organs are on the verge of failure. And then um, you're put in a very hot room or uh, a room with not much air in it. You're not gonna cope very well with, with those conditions. They could even be life-threatening. Whereas if you were 
healthy and strong and working out every day and eating healthy food, it'd be no problem. I see the condition of the biosphere like that. Um, rising CO2 levels are a threat, mostly because the earth is so damaged. The living systems that could handle that extra CO2 have been degraded. So we have a, a, a living being whose organs, primarily the, the forests, the wetlands, the uh, seagrass meadows, the mangroves, the soil, the, the whales even, the fish, the insects, like all of these beings are severely damaged. Uh, fish biomass is half of what it was when I was a kid, I read somewhere. Flying insect biomass down 75%. When I was a kid, like the bug splatter, you'd have to stop like every gas station, you have to clear off the bug splatter. And now it's like one or two. And, and I, I mentioned that to my father. He's like, yeah, when, when I was a kid, like we couldn't even drive very fast sometimes because of the clouds of insects. Wow. So, so we are living in such a depleted world. And, and why is that happening? I mean, I think it's mostly because of pesticides and habitat. Yeah, by design to a degree, right? This is, I think, brings us back to the beginning of the conversation to is like authentic desire. Like, so the short-term desire of humanity is like, let's kill everything that's in the way of for us to, to be us right on the longer arc of looking at that throughout generations and in, in like living breathing communities where it matters to look in, into seven generations mm -hmm. i think it it just becomes almost like humorous how how limited our our short-term points of view are mm -hmm. and, and shocking and truly shocking so wow i didn't know right. that about insect density i had no idea yeah yeah it it, it really comes down to what world do we want to live in? Yeah. And I think that we are facing a choice. It's not, a cho it's not the choice that climate, um, climate alarmism says it is. They say that the choice is, are we going to survive or not? I think the choice is, what kind of world are we going to live in? Are we going to be alone on a concrete world where we've developed technological substitutes for everything? And there are no more whales and there are no more forests and, and the sea is dead, maybe some jellyfish, but they're like, is that the world we want to live in? Or we, do we want to live in a world that where, where life has returned, where, where the, where you can look out and see thousands of whales again. And, and where you, you read some of this literature about what North America was like 300 years ago like fish runs that, that were so dense that you could like walk on the water. You could like dip a hat in there. You could put fishing lines in with no bait and, and fish would just, you'd, you'd catch fish in, in, in half a minute, like, like flocks of birds that darkened the sky, you know, like, like um, acorns and other nuts, like in such abundance that you have to wade through them. Like that kind of, like, do we want to live in that world? or a dead world. And if we want to live in a, a beautiful world, we have to ask ourselves, why have we chosen to move toward a dead world step by step by step? Every year, a step closer to a dead planet. What are the conditions of that choice? And I think you named it just now, and it's part of our conversation that, that we have not really 
taken stock and asked ourselves, what do we really want? It comes down to desire. What, what planet do we want? What world do we want to live in? Yeah, what's our, what's our home planet, right? Yeah, yeah. And if we, I think if we connect with our deep desire that, that is brought out, like when I have an encounter with a wild animal, like even a frog or a turtle, I feel so at home. I feel met. I feel nourished. I don't want to go out and buy stuff, you know? Like that is an encounter with my authentic desire. Yeah, that's really true. That is really true. It's very rare that I interact with an animal and then I just want to go buy things. I'm just in that yeah. giddy, kind of happy, childlike self. Charles, this has been an, a fascinating hour and I think we could keep going forever. Um, so really glad to, to kind of hang out with you through the, the Zoom technology here that we're using. Maybe um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share with people who are tuned into the live, who are going to be listening later? Um, anything specific you want to bring to attention? Um, I mean, I think I've already said a lot of things that I, I wanted to say. Um, maybe just that to trust our desire collectively and individually is a pretty big change from what we've been um, indoctrinated into. It feels scary for me, actually, every time I take a step into that. Um, and to end the, the war against ourselves, it's clear to me that that is the mirror image of the war on nature. It's turning the war on nature internal and going to war against our own nature and against human nature. And I guess I would like just to invite people to experience that feeling of daring, daring and relief in letting go of that. And it's not an all of a sudden 100% letting go. It's what is the next step of release of the war against myself? And what is the next step of my um, participation in my purpose in the service to something bigger than myself, which is also my desire. Like what's the next step? This is, can be a very gentle process where you don't have to like, you know, throw all caution to the wind and I'm just gonna rage, you know, um, in my desire and, and like, no, there's like something that, that you're ready for so I guess I would encourage people to, to take this information in that spirit, in the spirit of an organic unfolding and to identify um, what is the way that you've been holding or warring against yourself or warring against the world. That feels a little bit obsolete. And yeah, I'm kind of done with that. I like that. That's a, that's a great way. To, to end a dialogue is, is to invite in, uh, to a different perspective. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for, for being yeah. on Green Planet Blue Planet um, for like a longer sit down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, yeah, thank very you, Jimmy. happy to have you here. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. 
Make sure to follow the podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Check us out either on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you love to listen to this kind of information. My name is Julian Guderlei. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.